0: views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
1: Hello and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Eli Hinckley partner at BakerBots. Eli is a renewable energy and climate finance lawyer and partner at the firm BakerBots. Now, one thing that I'm sure y'all have been hearing about is the Inflation Reduction Act. This is a fairly large act going that went through Congress, got passed, approximately 750 pages, and within those pages are federal investment dollars into deficit reduction, energy security, and climate change programs. That is where it becomes interesting for all of us that energy security and climate change programs and how that plays into renewable energy. And as much as I want to read this entire literary masterpiece, I simply don't have the time. So this is where Eli comes in. He presumably has read the entire thing. And He's trying to figure out why and how and what to do with this new act and and how this can help catapult renewable energy and make us get more energy online, help us decarbonizing the energy infrastructure. So with that, I'm going to stop rambling and let's get Eli on to talk about the IRA. So Eli, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to BakerBots.
2: Sure. So I have been in the clean energy, energy transition, renewable energy space, whatever title you want to put on it, for more than 20 years. Um, I started my career as a tax lawyer doing work for utility companies and large IPPs. And shortly after I got started, that morphed into we are seeing the sort of early days of renewables and so got more and more involved on the renewable side. Um, and eventually ended up in a, in a leadership role within Deloitte, leading their alternative energy tax practice for the U.S. in sort of the early to mid 2000s. Um, and so left there around financial crisis time. There was a blip where the tax credits went away and turned into grants. And I thought the energy side was more interesting than the tax side. And so left and, and being a lawyer by training, found my way to a law firm. Have been at a couple since then. Um, and it expanded my footprint a little bit so not just tax but a broader sort of transactional project finance um climate finance uh, sort of role throughout throughout the year since and just joined baker bots a little over a month ago i guess um uh, bigger bots is a, a leading global law firm uh, offices all over the world um but but part of the reason for the move was it, it is a Historically focused, energy focused firm, somewhat traditional in the energy and industrial base. Um, but in the conversations I was having with them, there's a, a huge appetite uh, by some of the more traditional energy participants to find their way into this energy transition space. And so for me, it presented an a exciting opportunity to come and accelerate some of the deployment into the renewable space that hasn't yet really been unlocked uh, so it's it's been it's been busy exciting um, obviously inflation reduction act dropping sort of right in the middle of that transition process turned what was going to be a busy and exciting process into uh, something akin to being shot out of a cannon but it's, it's it's been it's been great
1: that is really exciting and I want to come back to this idea of the incumbent energy ecosystem and specifically talk about how they can utilize the IRA or how that may help help that catapulting into renewable energy. But I think we first need to start high level and help everybody understand, because I really don't even understand, what is the Inflation Reduction Act?
2: Yeah, so while the name doesn't exactly fit the the bill itself um there are some elements that long term will have inflation reduction area implications in part because we'll break down our net unit price of power that's the that's the operating theory and that's sort of where the name comes from but really at its roots what it is it's it's the biggest government built spending bill on climate technology climate mitigation technology renewable energy um, that we've ever seen it's it's across the board simply massive in terms of the amount of influx of support dollars certainty and clarity on how long those dollars will be available for which is critical for building out long sort of long lead time infrastructure um, fu- fundamentally changes the landscape for the development construction and long-term ownership opportunities within all across the energy transition space. So it's renewables, but it's also uh, hydrogen and carbon capture projects. And so it's, it's just amazing, crazy, sort of the level of enthusiasm and possibility that it creates.
1: That is, that's exciting for sure. And I think you answered my next question, that being, why is this so important? And it sounds like the reason it's important is because it is this very large, very significant opportunity and and very clear, very defined, and almost something that they can be relied upon for funding the future of low carbon energy. Is that is that kind of the importance behind the IRA?
2: Yeah. And, and, and the... the the point around certainty is a, is a really vital one. So for all of the renewable energy technologies, there have been incentives that have lived in sort of an on again, off again pattern throughout the, their sort of relatively nascent history past 25, 30 years. Um, and that creates challenges, right? So if, if there's an incentive in place and you can think about building new infrastructure based on that incentive, but the incentive sunsets, um, Inside of a window in which you might get something built, you're not going to go forward and build it. You want certainty that 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 support is there to make the economics work for your project. And part of maybe maybe the most important part of what Inflation Reduction Act does is to provide that long-term stability and certainty. It gives everybody a good long view on how long there will be support in place and lets people do some long-term planning. Lets people start to really invest in the development platforms and the construction platforms that will allow us to build out all of this infrastructure.
1: Okay. And now, uh, go ahead.
2: I was going to say the other side of it is right. There is, there's also the sort of increased influx in dollars overall, which helps. And then there are a number of technologies that had sort of lived in these orphan slots within the subs within the subsidy regime, you know, green hydrogen production, um, battery storage that hadn't it didn't have any support structure in place, and so those gaps have now been filled and. On a going forward basis, even more of those gasly fields to move into the sort of a, a second tier of this credit regime, and so what you have now is something that's sort of a it's a all rising tide to rise all boats, not just sort of a targeted you know, here dollar here's dollars for wind and here's dollars for solar moment in the industry.
1: That's a really good point there. That being able to have those focused funding mechanisms for those different technologies. I think that that is something I I was unaware of. And with your experience being 20-plus years in the renewable energy space, how does a specific investment there, say, into green hydrogen and giving those focused dollars instead of one-offs, how exactly does that end up? Well, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, when does that turn from a a subsidized industry into something that can stand on its own feet? Like where is the research that shows that that does ultimately convert into commercial technology?
2: Um, so part of this is just a function of scale. Um, and so what we've seen and, and you know, we can pull from the solar industry as a, as a, as a guide if you if you bought a solar panel 35 years ago they were there they work effectively the same as they do now and it cost you a hundred dollars that same amount of output from a solar panel today would cost you less than 50 cents right and that's a that's a profound reduction in the cost per unit um, and so the per unit cost of electricity generated by that solar panel has gone up commensurately now we're still sort of right at that place where that where that, that cost reduction is sliding across where our traditional energy comes from and we incentivize for other reasons than just technology acceleration, but we do see that it works. Um, and so really it's a function of the level of investment and how quickly it can get an industry to scale. And so the more, the more dollars you put in, the more investment there is, the more manufacturing that gets built out, the more expertise that gets built around installation and deployment and management, the lower the cost becomes and the easier to get to a place where we don't we where we no longer need a subsidy um, and they, they've sort of structured these subsidies that way we have a, a short window where they'll operate much like they always have based on sort of a fixed investment base or production based tax credit and that's the primary subsidy structure um, to one that will be actually a a carbon reduction index support and so everything will start to ride a phase out against meeting emission reduction targets over time as as we sort of move into that next stage of the the tax credit structure.
1: Okay, that's helpful to understand. And now when we're talking about renewables and with renewables in mind, what are some of the major aspects that have changed? So I guess the, the question here is, talking about different major renewables like solar, wind, geothermal what was the kind of pre IRA incentives that were in place for those kind of industries and now what is different in terms of you just mentioned the production tax credit and I've I've heard of a thing called um makers I think Ooh, and yep. maybe investment tax credit what are these, I guess, what are those major things that now are getting people excited about investing into these renewables?
2: So so structurally, the way the credits are calculated has changed a little bit. And so step back just for a minute. Right? Investment-based credit is exactly what it sounds like. It's a tax credit based on the amount of investment. Um, historically for solar, it was 30% has been working its way down over the past few years. Um, wind worked off of a production-based credit. And so you'd get a tax credit, a little tiny tax credit for each kilowatt hour of electricity produced, also been phasing down in and out over the past few years. So and geothermal and biomass sort of slot in on different different sides of that or you've got some optionality in terms of where you could go. But but what this what this new structure looks like, we still use that same investment based and production based tax credit sort of model, but but the way we calculate the percentage or the amount of the production credit percentage on the investment tax credit side has shifted to build in some other public benefit like concepts within the credit structure. And so, right, if if we look a couple of years ago, your, your basic level investment tax credit for solar was 30%. And it's been marching down as it would have been at 26% this year. Um, now, the actual base credit is lower. It's at 6%. But there's a multiplier. If you meet prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements, it takes you from 6% to 30%. And for most of the industry, that is the target, right? Let's let's meet our prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements. We get to that 30%. That's a great baseline. Um, now, the reason you layer that on is because you're trying to incentivize building out a workforce and making these jobs to be really sort of quality, high quality desired jobs in the marketplace. And there are going to be a lot of them. Um After you go past the prevailing wage piece, prevailing wage and apprenticeship piece, there's a second sort of adder onto the credit, which is provided for, based on the amount of domestic content in your project, somewhat complex as to how you figure out exactly what your domestic content content threshold is. But again, part of this is trying to motivate a build out of domestic manufacturing um, and, and, this comes up in a couple of different contexts. There's some direct credits now for manufacturing activities, um, uh, some specific to the sort of thing you manufacture and some just generally, if you're building out advanced manufacturing, right? So there's another large pot of money really to support the build out of a manufacturing base for the future of energy here in the U S. And that's been a challenge, right? We've the, the, low cost products and inputs, storage side, solar side, that have come in from Asia and particularly China have made it difficult for some of the American manufacturing side to compete. And so you build this domestic content addition into the credit structure, and it's another layer of support for building out domestic manufacturing. And so our credit that started at six, we took it to 30 after we met prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements, we can now we can now add another 10% if we meet domestic content requirements. That'll be hard right out of the box, just because there is not that much domestic com- domestically produced for our solar project, domestically produced solar component panels, inverters, etc. Um, but as people start to build that manufacturing, that will get easier. Um, so now we're at, now we've gotten to forty percent if we've met those thresholds. Now there's another adder for building in energy communities. Energy communities are certain certain areas that are close to. Or on brownfield sites are close to closed coal mines or coal plants, of which there's been a lot, Um, and/or is in a community that is attached to a high level of traditional energy employment. The idea here is that if you focus the build-out of your renewables in a community that's that will be negatively impacted by this transition away from traditional energy into renewables, you get an additional credit bonus for building in those areas. And so that can give you another 10% taking you to 50%. Not done yet. So there is yet another provision which provides for an adder for building in certain low-income neighborhoods, um, which is 10%. Or 20% if it's built on tribal lands. So in theory, you could stack these credits all the way up, build a project on tribal lands, and in theory get a seventy percent credit. The last bucket, those low income credits, are actually not absolutely available. They're limited to a to a to a to a defined bucket of 1.8 gigawatts of power. And we suspect that the allocation will be we don't expect to see a lot of 60% or 70%. We suspect the allocation will be for projects that wouldn't otherwise get built um, that didn't meet the other credit thresholds, but in theory you could get that 60 or 70 percent. But again, each of those adders, multipliers, adders are all built around trying to make this build out of the industry one that is fits all of the the the, the social criteria that will support sort of a fair but well balanced job creating. New industry or expanded industry, I guess.
1: Yeah. So with all of all of those add-ons and the way that everything is is built in, there is still that that first investment tax credit. But then you're essentially being incentivized to do what the bill is named after, driving driving domestic innovation and domestic build out of of the industry which in in the long term and looking at it from a from a US centric standpoint the goal there would be to reduce inflation and reduce energy costs and and essentially create an equitable and and an equitable energy transition for for all of these basically for everybody.
2: Right. And and, and and recognizing there are specific pockets that have either been left behind in some of this transition thus far or communities that will be disproportionately affected negatively because of job loss and job transition, right? So if we can refocus some of the efforts in those communities, you balance out the, the sort of process around and the fairness around this transition. Um, all that said, given what the apparent pace of the build-out looks like it's going to be over the next couple of years. Um, I suspect on the wage side, we may actually see some upward pressure on inflation. Uh, there is just going to be a huge demand for skilled labor in this space. Massive.
1: Very interesting. And I think that's uh, it's an interesting way to to think about it and and wonder what what really is going to happen even with all of this influx of additional investment how is that how is that or how is the pace going to ultimately impact energy prices and wage prices and and inflation in general
2: absolutely but but your point about long term i think i think we can all see that if you get to a place where it's domestically produced non-variable input cost right and if you've got solar wind you're your batteries or you're using those to hydrogen, whatever the case may be, right? You you've got a, a fixed base cost that's not subject to to sort of global instability in prices. And so you can't have the same sort of impact, inflationary impact for fuel prices going up like we've seen following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? That puts pressure on on Global commodities it pushes up prices all around the globe that causes inflation here and so long term if we take some of the teeth out of that, the impact of those global commodity prices it, it definitely has a an inflationary an inflationary stability like sort of construct to it and so that's the that's the long term view um, but as with anything if you if you sort of push investment into an area. Especially one that's going to be as labor-intensive as an infrastructure build-out like this, it's there. There are going to be some places where there is some tension around finding enough you know, both content and labor to actually get things built. And so, yeah, it will be a, it will be an interesting balance.
1: Yep. Yes, for sure. Now, looking at the the whole bill and kind of in the renewable energy space specifically i would imagine that there are some winners we won't say there's any losers but i would imagine certain technologies have greater incentives than others with that idea which ones have the greatest incentives which energies do you think are going to get the the biggest leg up or that that strongest catapult
2: so and 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 I'm I'm going to answer the question a little bit differently than you asked it I think, because on a, on an absolute basis there's I'm sure somebody's done some metrics in terms of who gets the most value ac- across the board and I I don't know what the answer to that is but I look at certain markets where or certain technologies that have struggled so far or are right on the cusp of sort of real scalable deployment and and the incentives here um, will be the catalyst to sort of take them from a theoretical or edge-like technology to one that will be more mainstream, um, you know, and and so I think long-term stability with a more dynamic price support structure, offshore wind will actually start to get built in a meaningful way. East coast of the U.S., Gulf of Mexico, and eventually floating out off the west coast. I think we'll, we will see a boom in, in offshore wind over the next few years. Um, I would say that you know, interesting. renewable natural gas is sort of an interesting pocket. There's a little short-term window where you can get a credit for building a facility that just produces pipeline quality gas. Um, Historically, it's and, and eventually, again, the production of that renewable natural gas, you're either selling it based on a state incentive or a state program like the low-carbon fuel standard in California, or you're trying to turn it into transportation fuel, and that's where the tax credits live. But for for a little window in time here, you know, for the next couple of years, new facilities that produce RNG are, sub, are eligible for for the investment tax credit, and so we're seeing a lot of energy there um, to really substantially build out the 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 sort of call it the biomethane industry within the U.S. You know, and there's there's good um, we, we have some indications from elsewhere that this is a, a viable path forward Europe's trying to hit a 30 percent target over the next few years to offset some of the lost Russian gas to, to bio content of their gas pipelines Denmark claims by mid 2030s that they will be hundred percent bio based in their entire gas pipeline network um, so th- there are limitations on what you can do because of land use and 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 what you're growing but But for this moment in time, they definitely have a a good support and that will drive things. Um, Hydrogen, obviously, fine industry on its own as it exists right now for nuanced uses. But the idea of hydrogen as a a real participant in the energy market in a big way, either as a replacement for natural gas, um, as a storage medium for power, any number of different transportation fuel, um, I think... There are still some technical hurdles, um, but I think we will see a massive investment in hydrogen over the coming years. And that scale we talked about now that can bring down costs, new solutions to market, all of that's gonna to start to fall into place. And I think we will see a really substantial green hydrogen build out, not necessarily in 2023, but as we look out sort of into the late 2020s and 2030s, hydrogen will play a significant role in how we're going to manage our energy infrastructure in the US. Um, and interestingly, the hydrogen credits are actually structured to have a slightly longer tail-on than the expectation. It will take a little longer to get some of that to market. Um, you know, there, there are really substantial credits now for carbon capture and sequestration technologies. Those have been a challenge. Um, in particular, the the ongoing energy cost to operate those is often difficult to make the economics work, and the credits seem to be offsetting some of that. So again, you, you see a place where some real development at scale could bring down that cost further and make that a rather than sort of around the edges technology one that that really is a little more mainstream um and then you know the sort of the the core solar piece given the sort of the price point that solar solar has gotten to the number of different applications you can use it for especially when we start to think about rooftops and things like that that will be significant um Maybe the biggest of all of these in terms of sort of who's winning now compared to where they were would be would be storage technology. And that's uh, that's the whole suite of storage technology. So it's something from pumped hydro to uh, lithium ion batteries and 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 all the new battery technology out there because they had lived on sort of on the outside as well. There was no direct support for a battery storage project uh, through the tax credits. But now they have their own, you could sort of tie it to an existing solar project and wrap it in that way. But, but now they've got their own dedicated credit structure. Um, they're part of the ITC. And, and I think we will see a lot more storage projects coming online uh, relatively quickly. The, the, right. the, other, the, other, the other piece that sort of sits behind, and I know we've focused sort of on tax credits so far, but the, the Department of Energy also got a lot of funding um, both in the IJA, the, the infrastructure bill that passed early in the year, as well as in the Inflation Reduction Act, um, you know, in, uh, Build Back Better Act, not Build Back Better Act, sorry, the Infrastructure Act in early in the year created this idea of hydrogen hubs. So There's additional dollars being invested there. The Department of Energy's loan program office got a bigger authorization under the Inflation Reduction Act, significantly bigger. Um, and so their ability to provide low cost capital or capital that can take on a higher risk, sort of take take a sort of a, a little bit more risk and where the underwrite um, provides another backdrop, especially against some of the larger projects that would otherwise have a difficult time getting financed. So your big green hydrogen projects, they've already committed to fund a couple of those. And some of these other Large scale deployments will find new life because there is both funding and a lot of momentum out of that loan program office to really sort of be a dynamic participant in the build out of this industry, energy transition industries broadly. Um, all of which was a really long way to equivocate and not really answer your question and say, kind of, everybody's going to win.
1: Yeah, that is what I'm hearing is that if there's anybody developing something new that's low carbon, then there are some type of opportunities here that you can utilize to develop or build out that technology. Now, for somebody like myself, being in geothermal and really focused in the subsurface, very in a very niche kind of area for the past 12-ish or more years, I, I am well aware that I am a siloed technical person who may have done a done a control F to find all of the times geothermal was said in the IRA. And I'm sure that that happens with other people. So from your perspective, who's somebody who you look at all of it, what is something that we are likely missing? Those of us who are looking for our kind of our lane, but I'm well aware when we talk about storage technology, that may be an opportunity to start pulling in, new funding mechanisms or new opportunities ways to mesh different innovative ideas what what are we missing for those of us who who may not who may not be comfortable talking about other types of things
2: so so first of all how many times did geothermal appear in the inflation reduction act i'm curious
1: uh i actually didn't do that it was just a that's what I would have done if I would have gone through to to actually read it.
2: I, I didn't expect it to do the number. I just thought it was, sort of a, thought it was funny. Um, so, so I think maybe the there, – yeah, there, there are a lot of pieces that it's easy to overlook. Um, but maybe the most important one is – and I, I will say the most important one right now, as we look at this, is that the 750 pages that you didn't read are really just the tip of the iceberg, because what those represent is Congress and some various inputs to Congress writing a bill that provides the framework for all of this support. The actual application of these rules still really it, it, that needs to be built out. So, you know, the function of how prevailing wage will actually operate, how apprenticeships will actually operate against that that multiplier. What qualifies and doesn't qualify as domestic content as you're thinking about sort of what's a component and what's not still needs to be defined. Um, So part of what we're doing now is going through a process where the IRS and the Treasury, Department of Energy for that matter, are collecting comments in various forms to try to refine what these rules are and provide guidance so that there is more certainty around how they're applied, right? If, if you're, if you go out to the market to raise money and your basis for doing that is, I think I'm going to qualify for this credit. And that's part of my, that's part of my capital stack, right? That's part of the dollars I'm putting together to build this project. When you show up at your investor or your lender's door and you say, I think I'm going to get X, they're going to say, come back when you know you're going to get X. And so, Filling in those rules, so that people have some certainty is 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 a huge step in this process. It's true in any any, legis- any legislation that's passed, but because this is so sweeping and it touches so many new things, it presents a sort of it's, uh, unique is maybe too strong a word, but an unusual demand for further guidance. Um, and so, if any of your listeners are interested, there is an open period for a number of these issues: uh, prevailing wage, domestic content. Um, some of the other related items for submission of comments to the IRS by November 4th. They'll take them after that, but they're not necessarily going to actually take them into account when they, when they write these rules. So we're probably on a timeline that we'll start to see the first of these new rules and it'll be a rolling process towards the end of the year or the beginning of next year. Um, And that'll start to really catalyze what can and can not happen in the investment space. Um, The hydrogen rules, they're gonna. My understanding, and I'm not sure this is public, but my understanding is they will issue guidance. They will issue a request for comments on their guidance at some point in the next week or so. And so, if any of these topics are of interest, it's worth taking a look, submitting a comment, talking to somebody. We, we for example, are drafting a number of comments ourselves. We're helping our clients draft comments. So there's there's there are all kinds of different tendrils of how to sort of influence what these rules look like. But, but the lack of clarity yet is maybe the biggest thing that most people are still missing on the outside. Like what's happening now? It's like right now we're just trying to figure it all out and try to get, trying to get those rules put in place. Um, you know, I think, I think another thing that easily gets overlooked, um, and I mentioned the loan program office. I think, I think the expansion and funding for, for the loan program office is massive. Um, they can do a lot with, with their resources. Um, And then another point I've already touched on, but I think, I think the just dire demand for a skilled labor pool as we look out through 23 and into 24 is, is probably the biggest unappreciated story in all of this. Um, And, and I, any, anybody who will, anybody who will listen, if you're looking for a new career, you should think about something on the renewable side, because there is just a there's just a massive need for skilled labor.
1: So that's, I'm glad you mentioned the loan program office. That's kind of what I was thinking when you first mentioned it and their expansion. And that's really interesting to hear how much of, of what has been now kind of giving some basic framework now needs that guidance. Just a, I know you just said it, but just to make sure everybody hears it, what are a few of those ways that if somebody has comments they want to give or a way that they want to help frame how this money is is allocated or how these tax credits are allocated, what are some specific ideas or ways that they can contribute to that comment period?
2: So anybody can submit a comment welcome to open forum. Um, If you are attached to any of the industry associations that work in this space, maybe not any most, if not close to all are working on submitting their own set of comments. So to, to offer up thoughts and or to engage and help them because this is a massive undertaking. There's so many different rules and there's so much uncertainty and so much clarity is needed that I, most people wouldn't turn down at least some thoughts and some help on this front um you can work with somebody like that if 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 you're sitting your company in your company chair in your office um your company may be doing something they may not be thinking about it but to raise it as a here's a here are issues that maybe we should be thinking about right If, if we had more clarity on um what is domestic content maybe we could get some component that we manufacture more clearly and more easily into market. Um, so direct company-based comments will be frequent, certainly if you're in the renewable space. Um, many of the renewables companies and or investors in the space for that matter um, are either directly submitting comments or in some cases working with groups like our firm to help submit those comments. Um, yes, We will, we will submit some comments effectively anonymously on behalf of clients. Um, others we will submit just because we think they're the right answer. Um, and then we'll also help our clients write specific comments in a number of settings. So there are a few different ways to come at it, but ultimately it is an open forum. Anybody that wants to write a comment can write a comment. The, the one thing I would say is it it's more valuable to have a specific ask with a solution for a fix or a solution for what kind of guidance is needed rather than something very vague and just, right? So for example, the, e, the electric vehicle credits were modified and they put a earnings threshold in if you can get it before you can get a tax credit for an electric vehicle. So if you make up a certain amount, you can no longer get a tax credit as an individual for buying an electric vehicle. And so right, submitting so a comment that says lower the, lower the threshold or raise the, the wage threshold, the earnings threshold so I can get an EV credit isn't really a helpful exercise. Um, but if you submit a comment suggesting that there is a, right, that that there could be a uh, adjustment factor for the earnings threshold in the EV credits based on know, area income to make it, to balance out sort of the relative impact of that, of that cap, that might be something worthwhile. I just made that up. I'm not sure if that's a thing or not, but that's for, for, as an example of the sort of thing you would want to do rather than just, I don't like it or I like it. Um, give it, give it some teeth.
1: Yeah. And that makes sense. And it, it basically, what you're saying is the, the variation in the cost of living and the standard of living where you are, somebody say in the Bay area is going to ultimately have more, more expenses, and a higher cost of living than somebody living here in Dallas. And that difference ultimately could mean what that tax credit has as an impact for that individual trying to decide if they're buying that EV. Exactly. And it may, it may be more valuable to that person who is in the Bay Area, even though they may on paper make more money than somebody in the Dallas area. Yeah that's very helpful to to highlight that. And the kind of the last question before we jump into the closing questions how does how can the incumbent energy industry utilize the IRA in a way that that helps the entire energy ecosystem drive towards decarbonization and drive towards a basically an equitable energy transition?
2: So I think I think there's been a view in pockets of the traditional energy industry that it was this was sort of a, a niche application or it's a different part of the market um, and it wasn't really going to be a direct competitor on a timeline that was that was concerning. I, I think the shift we're starting to see is a recognition that diversifying your asset base as an energy company, especially one that's coming from the fossil side, really starts to make some sense. And what, what the Inflation Reduction Act does is it gives you both a roadmap and the economic support to start to make that transition more quickly. Um, and so depending on where you're sitting, right there, there are opportunities for more passive investment um, right. There's, there's a, there's a huge need for I mean, part of the challenge or the tax credit based structure is everything requires somebody be paying taxes and not every trying to build things has a tax bill. And they've done some things to help try to fix that. There's a certain pockets you can get a direct payment from the treasury. Um, those are somewhat limited and other settings. You can just straight out, sell your credits to somebody else. But at the end of the day, a lot of this will require that somebody pays taxes. And so some of these large profitable companies have a fantastic opportunity to actually get exposure to and own a position in these assets while also offsetting some portion of their of their tax bill. Right? So it's a return and, and some, some additional value creation. Um, but also just just the opportunity to sort of enter this market and and with things like hydrogen and and carbon capture and storage being added, they live a little closer to the comfort zone for a company that works on a thermal-based solution, real natural gas, another thermal solution. Right? So if if what you know is pipelines and and thermal-based fuels, here are some direct opportunities to participate in this energy transition while still staying closer to your technical roots. So I think there are a few different ways that this really starts to reshape the landscape for the participants who'd sort of sat on the outside and watched. We'd seen some of the European oil, oil and gas companies move this direction a little sooner, but I think I think this will. I think this will pull not only domestic traditional oil and gas and sort of ancillary companies further into the energy transition, but internationally we'll see some of that too as they recognize there are opportunities for them to invest in the U.S. and start to diversify their portfolio by virtue of getting access both to U.S. assets and also um, in the clean energy space. So I think. It's a really this is a generational opportunity, uh, perhaps longer than generational opportunity, for those incumbents to think about how you transition your business in an orderly and economically efficient fashion that really wasn't there two months ago, three months ago. Time's going too fast.
1: <laughs> well, I think that is that's a great point to make and a great way to. Uh, close out that segment and transition into the closing questions. These final questions are the questions I ask all of my guests. They're a little bit different, a little bit off topic. That first one being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend?
2: Um, so given, given the focus of the discussion and your audience, um, I suspect a lot have already read, it. but if I were to, if I were to pick something sort of within, within the industry, I would have to pick the prize. Um, if, if you haven't read it, it really sort of puts an exclamation point on the role that oil has played in, well, everything, right? The, 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 re, the sort of post-industrialization of, of the world, globalization, geopolitics, conflict, everything. Um, but if you're looking for something that's not quite so, I don't know, energy-specific, Catch-22, it's always been a favorite. Or if you want a recent one, Project Hail Mary. A lot of fun.
1: All right. Well, I will have to make sure all of those are read in the near near term. I know I've read Catch-22, and I think I've perused the prize, but Project Hail Mary, that's a new one. So that's exciting.
2: Andy Weir, the same guy that wrote The Martian.
1: Ah, okay. Very good. Now, the next question, when will we be net zero as a society?
2: Yeah, and I kind of knew this question was coming. and still don't have an answer. Um, I think it depends a little bit on your, right? There are so many inputs that will drive what the pace of transition looks like that we don't control. Um, You start to see some suggestions in climate modeling. There are some feedback loops that have been triggered. And so I think if you start to see an acceleration of climate impacts faster than what we expect, faster than we're seeing, which is already faster than we expected. Um, you know, I, th- there may be more pressure to accelerate decarbonization and trying to get to a net zero number sooner. Um, by sort of all things being equal gas, 2075, practically, harder than it looks.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a good point that you make that, there is there are these feedback loops and the the way that the climate is reacting and and everything that we're seeing ultimately a lot of the models are are just their models so they're essentially fancy guesses and we don't know what's happening until it's happening so we may come up and realize oh we need to we need to change now and That's a, it's a scary thought, but at the same time, it is, it is nice to, it is encouraging to know human ingenuity and our ability to adapt and to change and be able to look head on at a, at a very hard problem and then be able to conquer it.
2: Yeah, no, and, and you, you touch on an important piece of sort of the uncertainty in the in the pace. And that's 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 ingenuity, innovation, because what we find is that throughout history there are moments where technological jumps happen where you didn't otherwise you certainly wouldn't have seen them coming. Um, it's 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 not modeled for and really can fundamentally change sort of the pace of change in a way that just isn't on anyone's radar. So that's that you, you can't leave that out. I mean I I project based on what I know and sort of what I expect, but there is always the possibility to be some giant jump forward that really accelerate our ability to decarbonize would be good for everybody all around. I think.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Well, the last question is now you actually get to ask me a question.
2: Um, well, I already asked you a question, which how many times geothermal appeared in the inflation reduction act. Um, so I'm interested to get a perspective from from the geothermal side. You know, we, we met years ago working in the geothermal space. I used to do a fair amount there, but haven't lately. Um, does, does the level of enthusiasm that I've sort of suggested exists around other parts of the renewable industry, are you seeing that same enthusiasm um, renewed in the geothermal sector?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think... I think we probably met at my first GRC back in 2009, and I remember the enthusiasm then and the excitement that was just all in the geothermal space. Even back then, one of the the first projects I was on was funded by Google to SMU, and now you see the same kind of high-level tech investment into geothermal and the excitement that is there. And I I do definitely see that because you have lots of people coming from traditional energy into geothermal. You have multiple new startups. And it seems like I, I hear about a new one every week or every month that wants to be producing geothermal energy, whether that is heating, and cooling, or industrial grade heat or whether that's electricity or whether that's electricity that's going directly to bitcoin mining or hydrogen or some other storage mechanism or commodity production it it is it is everybody is excited about geothermal at least that's that's my perspective but there is still so inside the geothermal industry there is lots of hype lots of excitement lots of enthusiasm even still with all of that enthusiasm geothermal is not a household name and that is that's one of my personal missions is to make sure everybody knows what geothermal is and everybody is excited to talk about geothermal because i think it should be right there with wind and solar it should be solar wind geothermal it should be oil, gas, geothermal, and it should be part of every conversation, which is why I, I will gladly answer a geothermal question every single time guests <laughs> ask. And, and ironically, it is, well, maybe not ironically, maybe maybe almost by design, I get to answer maybe six out of every 10 guests ask a geothermal question. It excites me. If you well, can't tell,
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I could help. And you, and you know, I'm a supporter. So anytime I can help, let me know.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, Eli, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you want to say?
2: I don't think so. I think I hit most of the points. Like I said, if you're, if any, if any of your any of your listeners are are looking for a career move, I, I recommend thinking about. The renewable construction development, well, finance any of the space. There's just massive going mean, to be massive demand for skilled labor.
1: Well, you hear, heard it here, folks. Skilled labor in renewable energy is where the next big boom is going to take place. With that. Eli, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and let me know you're enjoying it by leaving a review. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with OGGN on LinkedIn or visiting oggn.com. One more thing, I am working on understanding you, the audience, better so that I can continue to provide entertaining and educational shows. To keep doing this, I need your help. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link is in the show notes. Please go and fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some hard hat or laptop stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy.
0: Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.